0: At this time, uh, if you would turn in your copy of the Scriptures, or if you would scroll in your Bible app, or quite frankly, if you would just look at the sermon outline that you have in front of you, you'll have the Scripture that we're about to read together. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. So, you could turn there in your own copy of the Scriptures, or just follow along on the outline. At Grace Fellowship Church, uh, it won't take you long uh, if you Uh, Come to our church on a regular basis to know that we hold Scripture as a very high value, believing sincerely that as we read God's Word, as we hear God's Word preached, that we're not hearing the words of the preacher, but we are hearing the very voice of our Lord and Savior, our King, our Redeemer, our very best friend, Jesus Christ. And so in honor of the reading of God's holy Word, in honor of His voice, would you stand if you're physically able and follow along silently as I read aloud from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now skip down to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are found We are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, welcome to the last day of the most important week of the most important person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. In the passage we just read, Paul makes a bold claim in the very, few, uh, very first verses. Take a look again at 1 Corinthians 15, either in your copy of the Scriptures or on your outline, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, for I deliver to you as of, quote, first importance, what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I want you to take a look at those words in verse 3, first, importance. And that's pretty daunting. Uh, Paul says a lot. Uh, he's not short on words. He's not short on ink. In fact, of the 27 books in the New Testament, Paul authored 13 of them. Uh, and so, when Paul, of all Paul says, of all Paul writes, preaches, and teaches, Paul says, hey, Pay attention. This is of most importance. He's not throwing that phrase around like all the time. You know, how people are like, oh, this is my favorite Bible verse. This is my favorite Bible verse. Like, how can I have 19 favorite Bible? Like, he's not, that's not how Paul rolls. He is saying, this is of first importance. It's the only time in the Scriptures he says something's of first importance. And he's saying the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose on the third day, this gospel is of first importance. Uh, Two days ago, many of you joined us for our Good Friday service. Good Friday commemorates what Jesus did in dying on the cross, and that's part of what Paul says is of first importance. Look again at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is of first importance. But here's the thing. It may not seem that way to you today. Today. You can hear me say that this is of first importance. You can read in the Bible for the Lord giving us His Word through the pen of Paul saying this is of first importance, and you might not really agree with that. Hundreds of people, Lord willing, will hear this message over the course of our two worship services today, and it's one thing for the Bible to say that the gospel is of first importance, but it's another thing for you to believe it and to apply it. And so it may not seem like it's of first importance, and that could be for a variety of Of reasons. But today I just want to highlight two reasons that might be the case. First, it might not be of first importance to you because you, quite frankly, just might not believe it. Uh, Perhaps you're visiting our church today with a friend or a family member, or you're here on your own for one of your very first times. And if you are, I'm glad you're here. Our church family is glad you're here. And hopefully you're glad you're here. I hope so. But as glad as you may be to be here, You may not believe the gospel. Uh, You you may not believe the fact that Christ died for sinners, that He was buried, and that He rose from the grave, which we're celebrating today. If you don't believe that, it's certainly not of first importance to you, which, quite frankly, is understandable. We'll come back to that a little later. But another reason why you might not think it's first first importance: you might be a believer. You might love the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have been a believer for quite some time. You might be a card-carrying Christian and maybe have been for years. You might be a member of our church who loves Jesus, loves their Bible. You even love Easter. But today, it's just hard to see the gospel as, watch, first importance. First importance. You might say, it's important. There might be days you think it's a first importance, and then there might be days where you're like, it's definitely top five. Because, quite frankly life. Life. Uh, Life, we all have burdens to some degree, right? Every single one of us carries burdens to some degree. I don't know if anybody is in this room just like, you know, the only thing on my… I am singly, completely focused on the Word of God that is being preached right now. There's nothing else on my mind at all. Nothing at all. I don't think… That would be great as a preacher, but I just don't think that's the case. Like, you don't have… there's just things on your mind. You've got stuff to think about. Um, many of them could be manageable burdens. Maybe you have a job. It's not the end of the world, but it's a burden that you have to bear because work can be hard. You know, maybe you're a kid and you go to school, and maybe you've enjoyed this last week off for spring break. And remember, yesterday we were, yesterday we were sitting at dinner, and uh, we're looking forward to Easter Sunday, but my kids say, yeah, but then there's Monday, bro. Like, we got to go back to school. It's like, but Easter's tomorrow. is like, yeah, but Monday's after that. So, it's like they have to go back. So, that's a. But let's just be honest. That's a manageable burden. I think even my kids who would prefer to be home still say it's a manageable burden. Uh, you have relationships with friends, with boyfriends, with girlfriends, with spouses, with parents, with relatives. Uh, these are on your mind. These are on your heart. Maybe... Maybe those relationships kind of ebb and flow into whatever burden they might be. Sometimes it's a blessed burden. Other times it's like, oh, family. Like, it's different for each and every one of us. I know a friend of mine who said, uh, he likes, he said he likes his family like he likes fish. Like, they're good in small doses every once in a while, but after a while they kind of start to smell. And that might be true for you. I don't know where you're at with your family. But, you know, that's just a manageable burden, like, that we have to bear, Some of us have burdens that we may find hard to manage, right? Like maybe your job less, maybe you found yourself unemployed or forced into a career change because of circumstances beyond your control. Maybe you're finding it hard to make ends meet financially for a variety of reasons. Uh, Maybe you're in college, but you're still unsure of what you'll do when you get out of college, or maybe you wonder if you'll ever get out of college at all because of how things went this semester. Uh, Maybe while I'm battling congestion, you're battling a life-threatening illness or some sort of chronic pain and suffering that still goes largely undiagnosed despite all your efforts. We all come into here today bearing burdens. What do you do about them? And so the title of the sermon is Two Life-Changing Phrases, and I admit that can bring about an eye roll. Life-changing. Ooh. Like what's with pastors and their over-dramatic hyphenated words, right? Like, you've ever read John Piper, he's the king of those words. John Piper's got, like, Bible-saturated, word-centered, spirit-driven, gospel-saturated, game-changing, life-altering, gospel-focused, cross-centered, God-oriented, Bible-based, likely to some degree sleep-deprived, coffee-induced terms that just get thrown around often, 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 often. I try not to throw them around too often. I don't think I come before the church like, today... Is it gonna change your life? Like, I'm, I'm not that guy. I mean, maybe some people are, and that's fine, but I'm not claiming that every single Sunday, every Sunday, this is gonna be life changing. Certainly, it's the Word of God. It can be life changing, but I don't know. I'm just not that excitable. I don't know. Maybe it's a personality thing. But as I reflect upon what we're celebrating during this, which is the last day of the most important week, of the most important person who ever lived. There are two really short, easy to remember phrases that we have in the Word of God, both of which were said during this week over 2,000 years ago for the first time. And I would propose to you that not if you just say them, but if you get them, if you understand them, if you understand what they mean and apply it to your life, it really is genuinely life-changing. And so, in the time that remains, I'd like to look at those two phrases together, and they're both in your outline. The first phrase is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and verse 30, and it's simply this, it is finished. It is finished. That, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, were Jesus' last words as He hung on the cross. Uh, Verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, here's where I'm going with this. Whatever you fear, whatever you struggle with, whatever you find yourself worrying about, I'm not even saying those things are illegitimate. I'm not saying, oh, stop, come on, it's Easter. I had somebody who was going through a really, really, really hard time really hard time. Years ago, this is back when I was living in New York, and someone was going through a really hard time, and they went to their pastor for some counsel and for some wisdom, and the pastor said, I think all, I think what you need to do is go home and reflect on the Easter story. Reflect on the account of Jesus be, having been raised from the grave. Now, I get it. That's never a bad thing to reflect on, but we're not just like, hey, remember Easter, and your burdens will be like better. All right, peace out. Like, that's not, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Whatever you fear, whatever you struggle with, whatever you find yourself worrying about, please know this, and I'm going to say it a few times because it might be hard to understand at first, the worst thing that could happen to you has already happened to you in Christ when He died on the cross. The worst thing that could happen to you has already happened to you in Christ when He died on the The cross. You see, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God didn't create Adam and Eve with a sinful nature, but they still made a sinful choice in disobeying God's command. In making that sinful choice, they became sinners by choice, and their children were sinners by nature, as were their children and their children, and their children, and their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren, and our great-grandparents, and our grandparents, and our parents, and us, and our children, and our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, we have a sinful nature. Uh, We are not sinners because we sin. Uh, We sin because we're sinners. And that's not just, ooh, that's pithy. I'm serious. We're not, we don't become a sinner because we've sinned. Uh, When we sin, it is the overflow of our heart coming out. It's what comes natural to us. I think all of us would agree if we look back on our lives, whatever the bad is in our life that we've done, we likely weren't taught that. Uh, we weren't taught. To, I, have, I have four wonderful kids, ages 18 down to 8. They're great kids. Really love them. I'm like a dad to them. And, 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 and I've never gone out of my way to say, like, this is how you can just look out for yourself at the expense of your siblings. Now, pay attention. I want to teach you this. This is how… You make sure you're looking out for number one. I've never done that, yet they're super good at that. By nature, they're just good, but you are too, right? Like, like no one has to, like, listen, you got to look out for yourself. Make sure you're thinking about you. Uh, my kids are, are pretty good at math, but nothing, I mean, they're lightning fast if there's a plate of cookies on the table and there is not enough cookies for everybody to have one or or. Heaven forbid for everybody to have two. There's only enough for two of us to have two. There's only one to have this one. Can we split the other one? Can we do this when we carry the one? to Buy, sell, trade. Like it's just all of a sudden, all of a sudden they become geniuses of like the math in the moment. Boom. That's not genius. That's sin. That's what if there's not enough when it gets to me. What if he? Ta- what if she takes two? But we're the same way, right? We just don't vocalize it. We think the same things. Every one of us thinks the same things. We're naturally concerned about ourselves first. We have to make an effort to be concerned about others. Uh, You might take a family photo today. Somebody will post that on some sort of social media. The first person you will look at is you. just natural. You look at everyone else, but you're like, there I am. And every guy is like, I look all right. <laughs> every girl is like, oh my gosh, It's because we look at different mirrors. That's a different st- sermon, but naturally concerned about ourselves, naturally selfishly driven. Now, I'll grant you this, none of us are as bad as we could be, right? Like, I'm sure each of you know someone who's… like, don't point if they're in the room, but I'm sure you know someone who's worse than you, right? There's someone in your mind like, I'm not her. I'm not perfect, but I'm also not him. So We're not as bad as we could be. But the bottom line is Romans 3 and verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And some of us show our sin on a Waterford Crystal. And some of us show our sin in a brown paper bag, but at the end of the day, it still smells. It's still sin. It hasn't changed. Sin is sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And since we're sinners, we stand at odds with God, with no way of making that relationship right. Uh, in our Good Friday service, we briefly talked about how the law of God that came to the people of God through Moses the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest had to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he got the high privilege and honor of doing that once each year. Uh, And once each year, he would go behind the curtain into the place where the mercy seat was and would sprinkle blood to make atonement for the people's sins. And different Talmudic and historical writings say he went back there with a rope around his waist or maybe around his ankle because if he kind of like jacked that up, he'd be struck dead. They'd have to pull him out because not anybody can go back there. Only the high priest can go back there. And so, kind of an intense job. And let's say he went back there and it went well, which by the way means he lived. That's, That's the idea like, did you have a good day? Yeah, didn't die. It's a great day. Even if he did it right, You get to do it all over again in 365 days. And then again, and again, and again, and again. And so it's kind of like you have one job, but it's year after year after year. Talking to you, like, yeah, did it work? He's like, yeah, I did not die, but I'll be back to do it again next year. I mean, even our best efforts, even if we could live out God's law according to the letter, dot every I, cross every T, wouldn't change the fact that we have this sinful nature, sinful hearts and minds, and we're at odds with God. You're like, well, what does this have to do with burdens? And the phrase, it is finished, that Jesus said on the cross. Well, namely this, when Jesus said, it is finished, He meant He actually, watch this, He did accomplish once and for all what needed to be done to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him, that his sacrifice would not be repeated, that he would not have to go back on the cross year after year, that he would be the ultimate priest who would once and for all pay the price for all of the sins of all who would believe in him. And so what does that have to do with your burdens? Well, it does not necessarily relieve you of the very real burdens that you carried in with you today, but there is nothing that could ever happen to you that is worse than being at odds with a holy and righteous God. That's not to say, "Eh, just think about Easter and your burdens will go away like that other guy did. Like That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying there's no burden that you could bear that would be greater than the burden of being at odds with God. There's simply nothing that could happen to you than you finding yourself standing before a holy and righteous God with nothing to claim other than the sins that you brought to the table. And for you to be like, I'm, at least I'm better than Tom. God's like, but I'm, I'm God. I'm 100% pure and holy and righteous. I have sinned like never at all. In me there is no defilement. There's nothing even a, not, not a temptation, nothing. And so his standard is absolutely perfect. It's not just better than Tom. It's absolutely perfect. And so there's simply nothing worse that can happen to you than finding yourself in what the Bible describes as a lake of fire. There's nothing worse that can happen to you than eternal conscious punishment at the hand of an almighty God with no means of escape. Happy Easter, right? There's nothing worse that could happen to you than being at odds with God. And instead of that happening to me when I die, Jesus did that for me when he died. And that's why the worst thing that could ever happen to me already happened to me in Christ when Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Look at Galatians 2 and verse 20 in your outline. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. Now you might read that and be like, no, you haven't. You're writing, like, no, you've not. That's weird. You've not been crucified with Christ. But oftentimes the Bible will speak of the future with terms of certainty by using past tense terms. I've been crucified with Christ. Meaning what Christ did is as good as done for me as well. Like we're just saying, and I ran out of that grave. I didn't see any of you being like, stop. We never ran out of a grave. This is madness. I'm leaving. Like I ran out of it. We're speaking with certainty and celebrating with certainty of what we're going to do in the future, not because of our strength, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why the worst thing that could happen to you has nothing to do with the greatest earthly burden you're carrying right now. All of that is temporary. The worst thing that could ever happen to me is that I'd be treated as my sins deserve. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you would be treated as your sins deserve, that we'd be separated from God forever with no means of having a relationship with Him. But that's not going to happen to me because it already happened to Jesus, and it is finished. And that's why those words are genuinely life-changing because of two things. One, it gives me a perspective of the very real earthly temporal burdens that I have on my heart and my mind right now, just like you do. But most importantly, it's life-changing because it is life-giving. Because I will not suffer at the hands of an almighty God because of my sins, because Jesus suffered on the cross for me. And he said, it is is not mostly finished, not almost done, not I've really brought you super far, all you have to do is this. It is finished, and there's nothing left for me to do. Hallelujah. That's the beauty of the gospel, and that's what makes it is finished a pretty life-changing phrase. But the second phrase that I want to talk about today is he has risen. He has risen all of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Quote this phrase in talking about coming to the realization that Jesus Christ had actually been raised from the grave. Let's just think about this for a minute. Would it it really have mattered if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? Yeah, it's Easter, man. Don't ask that now. That's not your job. But would it have mattered if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? Like, I just made a, a whole... Portion of my sermon dedicated to the fact that he died. And not that he slept, not that he faked his death, he really died. That's why, if you look at the gospel, when you read through the word of God in the gospels or right in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Jesus Christ died for our sins, and it doesn't just jump to then say, and then he rose from the grave. You know what it says? Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was what? Buried. Like, no, he was legit, like he was dead. We buried the man. Like, he was dead. D-E-A-D, dead. And so, if he died, and that's what paid the price for my sins, would it really be the end of the world if he had a grave to visit? My son and I visited the tomb of the unknown soldier one time. Very moving experience. I'm sure most of you have, at some point, either for a, a family member or a famous person or whatever, you've probably been to a... Cemetery, a memorial site of, of, of some sort. It's a pretty moving experience. If I was moved that much by visiting the tomb of the unknown soldier, how much more moved would I be by visiting the tomb of the very known God? I think he still would have paid the price for sins. But look at some of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about how big a deal this would be if Jesus still had a grave. Uh, look at verse uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, either in your copy of the Scriptures or in your outline. Verse 12 says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what he's saying is, we're saying that Jesus rose from the dead, but you're saying that people don't rise from the dead, that that's not a thing. Which, before we throw stones at them, we can't really blame them, right? They're just basically saying, hey, everyone I've seen die stay dead don't see them walking don't see them rising from the so it's not that they're like they just say we don't believe that that's a thing that's not a thing resurrection of the dead but paul is saying if we're saying it is for jesus so how could you say that the resurrection of the dead is not a thing verse 13 if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and you might say so what verse 14 if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain What are you believing in? You're believing that Jesus Christ came and walked the earth and then eventually died. How does that make Him any better than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Moses, David, Isaiah? How does that make Him any better than any great man of God who had gone before Him and just lived a great life and died? You say, but His miracles, and I'm not saying His miracles aren't a big deal, they are. Jesus walked on water, that's like blessed buoyancy, that's a big deal. Moses parted the Red Sea, anyone can do that, no, not really, right, like Moses turned his staff into a saint, no, not a saint, a snake. (laughs) Fun fact, when I was saved, first book I ever read in the Bible. Not John. Exodus. Had this obsession with the movie Ten Commandments, and I just wanted to see if the movie matched the book. It does not at all. I was very disappointed. Like, where's Nefertiti? Where's the love scene? Anyway, yeah, it was very... It was, that was life-altering. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, He's just like any other good, godly, even great person that has gone before Him, but then died. Sure, miracle working, great teaching, loving people, great. But then he died. Uh, Verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Why would you have faith in Christ and not faith in David? Why would you have faith in Christ and not have faith in Moses? You say, because Jesus died for my sins. And you'd be like, well, prove it. He's still dead like everybody else. I mean, he died on the cross, That's that's more dramatic But last I checked, the death toll is one apiece, and he has met that by dying. Uh, Verse 15, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And so if Christ is not raised, that makes God a liar. That makes those of us who are representing Him liars. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You see, the price that Jesus paid on Good Friday would have been null and void if He stayed a dead Savior. He would just be a a hero who died for people, which is great and good, but death still got the last word. And so Jesus Christ would have died for the sins of His people But at the end of the day, who really comes out winning? Not Jesus. Death. Because death would have his foot on top of the dead corpse with his hand in the air saying that I have the victory. Yeah, he died for sinners, but at the end of the day, I'm keeping him locked in the grave. That's why in verses 18 and following it says this, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Meaning those who have... Died in the faith would have died just like every other lost person. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Friends, the gospel being of first importance impacts a lot of our life. We do a lot of things because Jesus, right? There's a lot of things we do differently than the world because Jesus. And if He has died and stayed in a grave, there's a lot of my life that is being lived out in vain for really no reason at all, for no power, for no hope, for no help, for no faith. That's why He rounds out this portion of Scripture by saying, in Verse 19, that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, like while you follow in Christ, it gets me into church, kind of gets me up on a Sunday morning, gets me out. They've got free coffee. It's kind of subpar, but it's free. Really, you're doing all of this just for that. Well, people are nice. Christians help each other move. It saves a lot of money. Meal trains are super helpful. People who are sick or involved in some area of life where they could use a feel like there's yeah no it's got it's it's got its perks. Wow. We sing. Someone's like I sing at Riverbend. Like we could sing anywhere. That's why in verse nineteen Paul says. If Christ hasn't been raised from the grave, we literally are the most pitiful people in the world if we don't have hope in the next life. We're doing a lot of things differently. We're swimming upstream. We're going against the culture. We're doing a lot of things. We're trying to be a light in a dark place. We're trying to be odd for God. We're trying to do all these things. Why? If there's no hope in the next life. And that's the reason it's such a big deal if he had not been raised, because there's this inseparable link between sin and death. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, in James 1, uh, just as an example, verse 14, it says, "...but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death." And so, if death has the victory over Jesus Christ, you would look back and say, sin and death, they're basically synonymous. If death won, sin won, and if sin won, Jesus Christ didn't really die for our sins." And so those things are inseparably linked to each other. You cannot have one without the other. Because if Christ stays dead, sin wins. If Christ stays dead, death wins. But if you read one more verse in verse 20, it says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so just as we said... Because of one person who represented the the human race, Adam, who sinned, and therefore we all inherit that sinful nature which causes us to find ourselves in group pictures and do worse, there is one person who represents the human race who has died so that the human beings like you and like me, sinners like you and like me, can have our sins atoned for, and that's Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the only other person to act on behalf of multitudes of people that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's why I say the best thing that could happen to you has already happened to you in Christ when He rose from the grave. Death doesn't win. We don't fear death. Not looking, I'm not wanting to die, but I do not fear dying. Uh, Ephesians 2, in your outline, verses 4 and following, says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the Great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Then verse 6 says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's another example where it's like, we've been raised up. I haven't died yet. How could I be raised? It's as good as done. We've been raised up. God has already chosen to do that for all who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We've been raised up with him. We've been seated with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Two life changing phrases, literally, two life giving, life altering phrases. Pretty simple, three words each. It is finished. He is risen. It is finished, it's been paid in full. He has risen. Death has not had victory over our Savior. And if you're here today and you're in that first category of people that I mentioned before, that the gospel isn't of first importance to you because it's not something you believe in, which I actually, I get. I get like, why would something be of first importance to you if you don't believe in it? It doesn't make any sense. It's my hope and prayer that you who came here with a friend, or you who came here because it just seemed like the right thing to do, or you who came here because it's just more convenient so you can all go out to eat somewhere afterward, whatever reason you came here, I'm really glad you're here. But it's my hope and prayer that you would hear the good news of Jesus Christ today and believe. And that doesn't mean you have to, like, you have to come up and give me a faith high five, or you have to sign it. You You have to do anything. I just hope that you believe the gospel today. I hope that you see yourself as, to some degree, a sinner, right? To some degree imperfect, which I think most of us would agree that we are imperfect, and that you would realize that that imperfection, that distance between you and God, whether you see it as great or short, that distance can't be bridged by anything you can do. That that gap that stands between you and a holy God will remain a gap until the day you stand before Him, and that you are in need of salvation. You're in need of someone who can bridge that gap and bring you across that great divide from where you stand to where Christ stands. And there's not an amount of of, of good works, there's no amount of piety, there's no amount of reading, there's no amount of praying or doing anything that you can do that can bridge that gap. You need a savior. You need Jesus Christ. And the good news is, you don't need to do anything because, phrase number one, it is finished. He has done what would need it to be done. He has paid the debt for sinners like you and like me. And so there's nothing left for you to pay if you put your faith in, in Christ, in trust in Jesus Christ. Because there's a debt that's going to be paid either way. You will pay a debt at the time that you die by going to hell for all of eternity, or Jesus Christ paid the debt on your behalf in eternity past for all who would believe. And either way, God collects. It's my hope and prayer that the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, would impact your hearts and minds today such that you would say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for my sins. I believe it was enough. I believe that God the Father was satisfied with the payment He made, and I believe that I am saved. It is finished. And that you believe that not only did He die, but that He was buried, and not only was He buried, but that God raised Him to life, and will do the same for you. And so that you would walk out of here, and you're not on cloud nine, skipping out of here, but with hope. With help uh, with a new start, that you'd be able to say what's at the end of your outline in those discussion questions, you'd be able to fill in those blanks that says, "I was fill in the blank, but God, fill in the blank. So now, fill in the blank, which every Christian, every Christian can testify to, whether they were saved at the age of 70 or they were saved at the age of seven. There's an I was aspect of their life, but God changed their life by calling them to himself. And so now there's something different about them. And you'll never meet a Christian that says, I was miserable, but then I got saved. And now I only feel joy for the rest of my life. That person's not real, man. That's like not legit. That's not like who. And that person's annoying, right? I'm happy all the time. Great. That can't be real. It's not about joy and happiness in this life, although I believe you will have some of that through Christ. It's about a greater burden that Jesus bore. Uh, I was going to pay the penalty of my own sin, but God in His grace and mercy sent His Son to die for me, and so now I know that I have a home in heaven. I was but God, so now. You need to know any Christian can fill in those blanks. Any Christian. It's not just somebody with some melodramatic testimony. Every testimony of saving grace, of going from death to life, is a pretty amazing testimony. I was, but God So now, in fact, I put my money where my mouth is. Right now, what about you? Which of you could fill in those blanks, even aloud right now? What would you say? You were what? But God did what? So now what? Say it aloud from wherever you are right now when you think, what were you? What did God do? And so now, what change has that made in your life? I was, but God, so now. Say it loud so everybody can hear. I know that's awkward but I'm going to, I could deal with long, awkward silences, bro. You have no idea. I'm not. I got all the time in the world. What would you say? I was, but God, so now. Let's hear it. And all God's people said, Amen. Who else? And And all God's people said, Amen. What else? all God's people said. Amen. What else? I love it. It's like a back in school. You guys are like not making eye contact with me. It's so great. I me mean, one or two more. What else? I was, but God, so now. And all God's people said, amen. And all God's people said, If, if you're visiting, I assure you, I did not uh, pay these people to say what they just said. But it's a no-brainer that someone's going to say, like, if you don't speak up and praise God, the rocks will cry out. Do you know why that is the case? It's because He is risen. It's because He's given us life. It's because sin and death and hell will not have victory over our lives. It's because it really is finished. It's because Jesus really did pay it all. It's because we know that because he ran out of that grave, we too will run out of the grave, all who believe in him. And so it's my hope that if you're not a Christian, that you would just from the word of God, from the words of different people's testimonies, all of which are very different. I don't know if you noticed, know it, very different. I'd have to say, now I need to talk to somebody who's like a male in this age group. I need like a next level, like a female, like just different. God doesn't save one type of person. He saves sinners. And so it's my hope and prayer that if you don't know the Lord, if you don't love Jesus Christ, that today you would put your faith and trust in Him, that you would say, I believe. I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. I'm banking on this. I am, like this is what I am putting all my faith and trust in. And now I'm going to do my best to live a life that pleases Him. But I'm going to really believe that He really did pay it all. It really is finished. And He really has risen. And that the good news of the gospel would be effective to your salvation. But if you are a Christian... If we've been saved from above, you've been born again, it's my hope that today you would reflect upon our resurrected Savior and have your joy renewed within you. I want to ask our worship team to come forward as we prepare to worship the Lord through song. It's my hope that you will have your joy restored to you even as David prayed in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's my Hope and prayer that you would look forward with great anticipation to a day when sin and suffering and death and misery and sadness and depression and discouragement and despondency and suicide and lostness and tension and all that you feel and, and sense and fear in this world will be gone, not reduced, gone. Because that day is coming because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that there will be a day where you will stand face to face with this risen Savior, face to face looking at the one who died and rose again, and we'll have the joy that none of us can comprehend. There's nothing I can do to explain it to you. I've not seen it either, but we'll have the joy of worshiping our risen Lord and Savior face to face forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the resurrected Savior that we know and love because of your grace and because of your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would cause your word, your word, to run forth in a mighty way. Would you cause it to be effective unto salvation for those who need you? Would you cause it to stir our hearts anew and afresh for those who know you that we might leave here looking forward with great anticipation to that day when sin and death will be no more, only because you, O God, have risen, and we have faith that we too will rise because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your truth, and because of your grave-conquering, death-defeating, sin-conquering power. In Jesus' name. Amen.